everyone. Welcome to your newest episode of the Cosmic Matrix podcast with your host, myself, Laura Matsu, and my husband, Bernhard Gunther. And on this episode, we are going to talk about, or ask the question rather, is the age of gurus over? We're going to talk about this Dalai Lama situation, which basically went very viral. For those who don't know, there's a video that went viral. I think it was on Twitter first or on social media that basically showed the Dalai Lama asking a young boy on stage to suck his tongue. And it's been the conversation um, amongst many people in the spiritual community for the past few days. So we're going to discuss that. We're going to talk about cognitive dissonance, positive projections. Uh, we're going to speak about Bernhard's article where he talked about this incident and the Tibetan tradition and history and the shadow of the Tibetan history. We're going to discuss the trauma response, or rather the natural response of disgust when it comes to sexual abuse and anger as well. We're going to also talk about um, the Saturn in Pisces and how it relates to his chart and the issue with projecting your hate and anger towards any of these people from a spiritual perspective. Um, we're also going to talk about how the age of religions is changing um, we're going to talk about the concept of follow the teachings and not the teacher and much more. And for those who don't know, we always have a second hour where we go much deeper into the topics of these podcasts. You can sign up. I think it's like $11 a month still. Um, and you can sign up at veiloofreality.com and you'll see it under membership. So if you join, you'll get access to the second hour of every podcast where we go deeper on each topic. So on this second hour of this podcast, we're going to talk about um, how this kind of fall from grace that a lot of gurus tend, uh, tend to go through relates to an evolutionary condition and evolutionary astrology called the second spiritual state. And um, we're going to talk about how that relates to being highly spiritually evolved, but you can also have psychological stuff to still work through. Um, we're going to talk about how asuras, which are basically very powerful occult forces that work for the side of evil, I guess you could say, can take over teachers. We're going to talk about the issues with just, I'm going to be my own teacher. Um, and we're going to also share some spiritual, uh, personal experiences with this guru lineage, I guess you could say, with my own experiences and the disillusionment I've gone through personally. Um, we're also going to talk about a really big topic in religion, which is suppressing sexuality and what is the difference between suppression and transmutation. And then where do we go from here? Like, it seems that, at least in my own experience, a lot of the people that I've looked up to in the past few years have uh, shown me that they're humans, that that I they're nothing that I would personally worship, and that I need to carve my own path. And I think a lot of people are at this turning point um, right now. Excellent. So yeah, we're starting off. We want to talk about this Dalai Lama situation, as you call it. And some of you may be aware of it, some not. And there has been, as Laura mentioned at the introduction, this video going around on, I think you're right, it started on Twitter. Yeah. And this uh, video clip of the Dalai Lama, like hugging this young boy, uh, actually also kissing on the lips. And then there's this pause and uh, touching on the shoulder. And then a Dalai Lama asked the little kid to suck his tongue, suck my tongue. And they created a lot of uproar, right? Um, you can check out the video. It's also on my 
a website in the article I wrote on this event called the Dalai Lama Suck My Tongue Incident, Tibetan Tradition History and the Shadow. So that's on my website, veilofreality.com. Um, now, you may ask, um, <clears throat> why do we actually want to uh, focus on this uh, issue? A lot of people said there's a distraction, harmless events, you know, there's so much sexual abuse, pedophilia already, Where are, where's the client list from uh, Epstein and all this, all valid questions. But, you know, the way we looked at it and processed, and especially within the spiritual community, we have seen some very interesting reactions, a lot of defense and apologies uh, regarding the Dalai Lama and all of that. And that raised some big, very big red flags in light of this dark age of Kali Yuga and also how evil operates in our, in our world very covertly, which most people have no awareness of. And also the distortion and the condition uh, of, of history or the condition worship and admiration of religious spiritual celebrities, like very famous gurus, so to speak, as the Dalai Lama is as well. So we really want to dive deeper into this whole topic, not only also from a psychological, but also esoteric, spiritual, and occult perspective. So there were uh, two kinds of uh, reactions. I have to say, from what we've seen, the majority of people saw right away there's something very off. And if you watch the video, that clip itself, um, I feel the normal reaction that what I, which I perceived, um, and you can share shortly as well, was like a very, I felt a disturbing uh, emotion coming or something feels very off, this is not right, some icky energy, almost like a uh, sensation of disgust that something is not right, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Beyond this like image or appearance or just playful stuff, right? And I want to like spe- spe- specifically hint at when you look at this video clip, for me, what was very insightful was the moment His Holiness touches the boy's shoulder and there was like few seconds, two, three, four seconds, up to five, a pause before he asks, suck my tongue. And in that pause, I sensed his whole energy shifting. Something else came through through almost like this very like creepy older guy has this sexual um, attraction to this young boy. Something mm-hmm. else came through like Nazaric force. Like almost he forgot himself in this moment where he's at and then asked the boy to suck his tongue. And mm-hmm. it also saw and sensed that the boy felt very uncomfortable and it was very disturbing because all the the adults were cheering and laughing kind of like oh it's so funny right um so that was just very disturbing so for me it's obvious oh my god here we go you know this is some pedophilia energy right there and most people I have to say I think I saw that as well right away they trusted the the instinctive gut insight right the, the well, yeah, somatic like experience a few things came to mind well number one one thing that you didn't touch on is that mm-hmm. the kid's body language was showing yes. obvious signs of discomfort pulling back you know that's very clear um and then also we have to understand that like body language, um, this realm of science that we've spoken about on other podcasts called interpersonal neurobiology, which is basically the science of how our nervous systems respond to one another, can also show us that when we watch someone in discomfort, we, a part of our nervous system, should ideally feel discomfort as well. Mm -hmm. It's part of how our nervous systems entrain to one another. So, and one thing that also came up is I realized that a lot of people, even when I commented, put like the barfing emoji on the video (laughs) and stuff, because that's actually the natural response. So Mm -hmm. what I've learned from healing my own trauma, especially around sexual assault, is that on a somatic level, 
sexual assault survivors often need to get into feelings of disgust and anger in order to heal. And I'll explain why that is. It's because disgust is an emotion that shows you move away from this. This is not good for you. This is not something that feels right, right? So if someone, for example, is trying to engage with you sexually and you're not really attracted to them or you're not really into them, it will be natural for you to actually feel some level of disgust so that you move away from them, right? And what isn't a normal response to abuse, but is actually the more common thing, or pretty common, I wouldn't say it's most common, uh, having adults say it's okay and not do anything, cheering and laughing, because if a bystander or even someone in the community knows the abuse is happening and they don't protect the child, there's like a secondary trauma that takes, attachment trauma that actually happens. And I think the thing is, this is crazy because we've literally watched an 85-year-old man ask like a nine-year-old or something boy to suck his tongue live on stage. And there's people who are so caught in their heads and ability to rationalize anything that they can't feel that disgust. They're just like, you know, they think it's okay. And then imagine if like the president, well, let's take the most triggering person, Donald Trump. Imagine <laughs> if Donald Trump yes. asked a young nine-year-old girl to do this on stage, they would be throwing him in prison. Yeah. And then people bring in the cultural differences. I personally think that that's people trying to cobble together a rationalization for why it happened when the large majority of people are like, gross, this is wrong, yeah. you know, period. And that actually gave me hope in humanity that a lot of people were able to see that. It wasn't their own shadow. It wasn't their own shit. Disgust and anger is a natural response for having abuse done to you or witnessing abuse done to another person. Yeah, that's a very important. We're going to dive into this deeper into the whole shadow work, um, shadow projections, negative and positively, which is a big part of our work. But in this instance, it doesn't mean that your shadow get triggered if you feel disgust and discomfort, even anger at this at this situation. Well, it's very I would say that it depends on each person. Like your own shadow definitely can get entangled in it, yeah. but it doesn't mean that disgust and anger in itself is your shadow. Disgust and anger actually have a purpose in our biology. Disgust, evolutionary speaking, will prevent us from eating foods that will make us sick, from doing things that will make us sick. That's yeah. its function, right? And you can apply this to human sexual relationships. You can apply this to anything. So it has a, you know, it has a, a natural intelligence to it. It's there for a reason, basically. Yeah. And the reason why I also want to talk about this as well is because it goes way deeper. And because we saw then over the past few days, a lot of uh, Dalai Lama apologists, you know, uh, rationalizing it, it, it really intellectualizing and pulling the tradition card you know yeah, almost, and they're all almost pulling the same excuse the same excuse it's like I, I just recently wrote about it's like almost an npc hive mind a vertical group entity all <laughs> tradition you we westerners are ignorant we don't understand tradition and yeah. becomes very like mental gymnastics to justify it and it was just mentally you notice that uh and not even tuning into the energy. It's like, oh, tradition, we don't understand. They're just having fun. And I want to point out two quote-unquote fallacies or most common excuses, the two most common excuses people pulled. Number one, and there's been people reposted this meme, also very mechanically, the true meaning of the Tibetan phrase, eat my tongue, right? 
which first of all, he didn't say eat my tongue, that he said suck my tongue, which <laughs> then apologists excuse as well. His he just misspoke. He's not he doesn't know English very well. <laughs> excuse me, he's the most westernized exactly. Dalai Lama. Exactly. He knows what's appropriate or not, yes, right? Yes. As a spiritual and he, and he, leader. Yeah, yeah. And as an enlightened what Dalai Lama incarnated yeah. and all of that. So that's but this is fascinating because as I see this uh, meme, it's like it, this meme tells people what to think and believe, right? Mm -hmm. And then, um, so basically it just whitewashes it in the sense of eat my tongue is just um, a, a fun phrase to show compassion, just playful nature or just sticking out your tongue. Well, and they, that's fine. Sticking out your tongue to a child for fun, that's a whole different story than saying suck my tongue. But the point is, it's not the verb. It's not about, that's what people... Uh, don't get their focus on the words and not the energy and what really happened exactly, in these, in these exactly. few seconds. That's, That's the point, yeah. And they're com it's based on cognitive dissonance. We're going to talk about this as well and rationalizing, intellectualizing. And also, a lot of people uh, posted this video then, right? By this, uh, was it a Tibetan guy it's or a Tibetan some guy? guy yeah. Very, the, very yeah. popular video that went around on YouTube called, it was titled, Stop Central. Sensationalizing the Dalai Lama's innocent interactions in Tibetan perspective, where this guy says, you know, the short video has been, you know, falsely edited. Here's the real version. Here's the unedited version. But ironically, that video itself, which people also use to justify the Dalai Lama's actions and just playful tradition, is also heavily edited. You'd yeah. never see the whole raw footage. An unedited video would show the whole event from the day, from the point the boy goes up until the end without cutting without any comment overlaying it in between or over it. But in this video, this is also very heavily cut and this guy narrating it already conditions the viewer's view by apologizing him, by saying this is the tradition, just playful nature, and shows that critical a part of the video not until the end, 15 minutes later, after he already tried to <laughs> convey this is just... Uh, mm -hmm. playful nature, Tibetan traditions, we Westerners don't understand and all of that. So people also mechanically reposted this, all, uh, all done and fine, right? Yeah, it's almost like the the card they're pulling is similar to like the woke card. Like mm -hmm. you, you know, it's, it's all about culture. You don't understand. I even had someone tell me that I had a white-centric opinion and I'm actually half Asian and my grandparents were Buddhists. White-centric opinion on this incident? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It was hilarious. Like, I get called a racist for, like, everything. Like, I can, I can just have any opinion and I'll always get called a racist <laughs> by a white person. It always happens. Like, someone comes out of the yeah. world and I have to say, I find it hilarious. Across the board, it's always someone that's more white than I am. It's like, so it's hilarious. So... Um, now, one more thing I want to just add to this real quick before we move on also this eat my tongue thing you know which this it's ironically like it's so mechanically like vertigo hive mind oh, just post this uh, meme and then move on go back to sleep exactly and the meme literally tells people what to think it, you don't even need to your own words at the end of the meme it says if we're honest with ourselves we know that when we form an opinion on any topic without considering many aspects of context in any given situation we are choosing to keep a significant degree of ignorance in our reasoning yeah. Right. Not even their own words, and like, oh, and again, it over it kind of escapes in the head, and not we need critical thinking, but way deeper critical thinking than just reposting a meme you never researched yourself. And and let's say hypothetically, uh, you know, with this eat my tongue, even if it's true, even if it's just uh, this eat my tongue is a true expression from Tibet, you know, Tibetan phrase chelesa as it's called, and just um, I've given you my love, my candy, like it's just playful nature. Even if that's true. 
this can also be used and abused with yeah. a different intention. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I go back to that video and this, the, you know, if you have this, if you're in tune with your psychic somatic uh, impression and can trust that beyond the intellectualizing, rationalizing, something is very, very off there. Yeah, and imagine a Tibetan moves to the U.S., under this, and he's actually a pedophile under the surface, but he goes around asking young kids on playgrounds to eat his tongue. And he says, oh, it's suck my tongue, actually. You need to suck my tongue. Yes. That's criminal. Like, I'm sorry. Like you, This is the whole thing about positively projecting on the Dalai Lama. I read about something recently called like the halo effect, where if some one person has one good quality, it doesn't allow people to see any ba bad qualities in them. It's like the positive projection concept. Is that... If we put it in, you know, the thing is, is it's it's wrong to ask any child to suck your tongue. <laughs> like, this is why, like, I can't believe we actually have a conversation about this, but I get it in a sense, because if I hadn't personally gone through my own somatic healing journey around sexual abuse, I could easily go into a form of denial because I have to say to witness this and to watch this is pretty gross. And I've had multiple people who have been sexually abused who've messaged me and told me that it was really triggering for them to watch because it reminded them the abuse they experienced, yeah. you know? So if you have a huge uh, wall of denial around sexual abuse, you will also gaslight yourself around this instance because it will be really hot because basically facing the creepy energy in him will make you face it in your past as well. So I think that we need to understand when looking at a um, shadow like pedophilia, defense mechanisms like denial, like rationalization are built into it because it's a really... Cognitive dissonance. Yeah, because it's a really dark and disgusting thing yeah. to look for many people to look at. I want to also address the deeper uh, definition and issue of cognitive dissonance in general, but let's want to get to one more argument the apologists make, which is um, the mother was there, she was cheering, she was laughing, she was allowing it. Yeah. What's, what's your, what's, <laughs> what, <laughs> that's, I mean, some people may, well, like, if anybody who made this uh, argument doesn't have an understanding of, of, of trauma. Of trauma, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I know for a fact in my own life and through many women I've worked with, that the mother will often collaborate with the child's abuse. And that's that secondary trauma that I spoke about, where if the child is being abused, the mother will either turn a blind eye or she'll support it. Or think of all these kids in Hollywood, for example, who end up mm. child stars. You know, that's a perfect example is their moms often like actually, especially if their moms just want them to be famous because it's a free meal ticket to them, they'll just pimp them out, you know? So number one, the mother agreeing to it is actually just a red flag for the mother. I mean, I don't think that she meant any harm. I think she's also Indian and just, you know, worships the Dalai Lama. The Dalai Lama is giving her son attention. So therefore yeah, she exactly. can, you know, it, 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 like there's, there's this like halo that goes around these spiritual figures where they can really do no wrong. And then often that's why they get surrounded by enablers. So that's one thing. And then also someone else brought up uh, as well, by the way, it was Teal Swan who brought up this, uh, this argument that, oh, the mother was there, it doesn't, then everything's fine. She also brought up the fact that the kid was laughing and having fun. I was like, okay, mm. the fawn response in trauma theory is about kind of pleasing your abuser. It's a survival mechanism. Yes. I know for myself, when I was kind of, you know, after I had been gone through some sexual trauma, you know, I basically 
was fawning for the people who abused me. And it confused me until years later, until I understood the fawn trauma response. So it's basically an aspect of freeze. It's what we do. It's like Stockholm syndrome of a type. It's what you do to survive the abuse, to justify it. And that can go on for years. Like it can be really complicated because I know from my, I know from my own personal experience, everything in your body is telling you something's off. So you either have to disassociate from your body, which is what a fawn response does. It gets yeah. you into freeze. But then the fawn response like, is almost like your mind trying to like paint like another illusion on what just happened. Be like, oh, it's fine. He didn't mean to do that. It's all good and play. You it's, gaslight yourself. You gaslight yourself, exactly. Yeah. So this whole mother was there and she allowed it. Argument is completely ridiculous if you understand trauma, if you understand any other sort of abuse, even what you mentioned, where uh, parents, mothers, uh, fathers live through their children, you know, pimp them out to become child stars and all of that. Or in this case, oh my God, my... My kid is going to be uh, uh, meeting the the famous Dalai Lama and her projection of human worship and not even tuning in, yeah. you know, and all of that. And, and then people also claim, oh, but he raised his hand to want to be, you know, get a hug from it. That's fine and good. You know he, what he I mean? He consented to a hug. He yeah. didn't consent to the other stuff. Exactly. That's what I'm saying. You yeah. got that's see it all in context. The yeah. most important part is the end of this uh, right before suck my tongue the whole energy and everything changes and shifts. Yeah. And also, you know, that's a big conversation that goes on in a lot of like leftist circles, I guess you could say, is around consent and children. Because also children for a very long time, even when I was growing up, were taught, oh, you got to hug your uncle. Oh, you got to show affection. Oh, be nice, you know? So I've just noticed there's a trend deconditioning kids away from that and actually teaching them body consent and that teaching them they don't have to hug anyone if they don't want to. If they want to hug someone and that person wants to kiss them, they don't have to. You know, I think that this is really amazing that kids are being taught this literacy. And that's also why the Dalai Lama thing in context seems so wrong, because we're like in in the Western world. Now it is more about teaching kids consent. And if this is a true Tibetan value that you can just go around and ask kids to tuck, suck your tongue and it's an ancient tradition, well, then that needs to be questioned too, you know? And I also have to say that this excuse, oh, it's just culture, you don't understand. Well, in lots of cultures, circumcision and doing all sorts of weird rituals with the baby's pee-pee is like yes. basically also okay. And I don't agree with that either. Just because yeah. it's culture doesn't mean okay. Child brides are, 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 are still are still acceptable in some cultures. Pedophilia is still sub- acceptable in cultures. Yes. Genital mutilation is still acceptable in cultures. So I'm not going to take this excuse, oh, you're just projecting your white-centric viewpoint onto the world like this woman said. No, I'm sorry. Like yeah, and, and we, some, and some we be, get, I, I also get to say this isn't okay. Like just because yeah. it's culture doesn't mean that it's uh, immune to any critique exactly uh, in some middle eastern cultures uh it's normal traditional to marry a 12 year old girl yeah you, exactly. you literally sell it you yeah. know you sell your daughter to some guy who buys it you yes, know and that's yes. the tradition and, and culture by the way with this whole mother thing parent thing by the way let's go back a little see some other inst- instances for example all the shoulder rubbing hugging and sniffing biden has engaged in on little children kids boys and especially girls Right, who clearly felt uncomfortable, you see it in the video, and their parents are right there as well. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. justify it. Or yeah. all the so called family friendly and highly sexually explicit drag queen shows for children nowadays. Yeah. yeah. Where they give dollar bills and that's it's highly sexualized. And the parents are there cheering as well. I mean, that's that's failure in parenthood. 
It doesn't yeah. make it okay. Well, here's my view about it. Okay, so like I still have a variety of groups that I belong to on Facebook. And one of them is a somatic experiencing inspired group. And they're more on the side of progressive leftists, meaning like, let's teach kids about sex really young. Let's teach them out like all sorts of sexual orientations. They're more on that side. And I was really shocked. I wasn't really shocked, but I was surprised that um, a group of people who teach about somatic intelligence were basically taking the culture card. They were like, oh, it's just culture. We just don't understand it. There's lots of things in different cultures, you know, that we don't really understand. And literally rationalizing what was very clear signals of the kid not wanting that affection. Like, that's all you need to know. Like, that's the whole point of developing somatic intelligence yes. so that you're more in tune with your body. And you can also be more in tune with the somatic intelligence of many other people. You become actually really good at reading other people's bodies through being in your body. Yeah. So so let's, in that note, also one big aspect of the denial or the rationalization, mental gymnastics and uh, justifications of, you know, basically defending the Dalai Lama and all that is based, and it goes to many other factors. That's why it's not just about the, this incident about Dalai Lama in general. It's about a lot of things that happen in the world by pathologies being normalized and just excused, right? Rationalized, justified, and all of that. But the big aspect is denial and cognitive dissonance. And I want to talk about a little bit of about cognitive dis dissonance, which I wrote about in my article uh, on this topic as well. So basically, you know, also you have noticed a lot of people who kind of fall into the, you know, becoming apologists for the Dalai Lama have more like a mainstream view of spirituality or even the Dalai Lama and all of that, right? So admitting, basically admitting that the Dalai Lama may have acted inappropriately in a predatory fashion and even considering that his, quote, holiness may be a pedophile with a very dark shadow in secret and again, who knows what happens behind closed doors, is impossible for anyone who has this very socially mainstream conditioned view of him as a kind, good, spiritual person who would never do anything like that, right? The, the spiritual mask. Uh, these positive program projections that are socially acceptable in many pop spiritual and mainstream circles will override any discomfort that comes up when the core belief within oneself is questioned. Mm. So in order to buffer up and mask up this discomfort and friction within, the brain automatically looks for an excuse or rationalization to make it all good so that the core conditioned belief in view about the Dalai loving kindness Lama is not threatened. Hence, the, it's just a tradition argument. It closes off any deeper insight and impression on a psychic, energetic, somatic level. It overrides it all. Right? Mm -hmm. It's also very important to understand that the mechanism of cognitive dissonance is completely unconscious and mechanical. In other words, people who react that way have no idea that they're doing and would only deny it even more if you pointed it out to them. That's also why it's virtually impossible to reach people suffering from cognitive dissonance. You cannot like reason with them anymore. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So it's basically an unconscious psychological defense mechanism to keep the rose-colored glasses on so as not to face the lies they are telling themselves for it would open up a can of worms leading to a disillusionment their psyche may not be able to handle. It's literally a mechanical, unconscious survival mechanism on a psychological level. 
Okay, so I would really like to get into the Saturn and Pisces aspect of this because I think this is a really important piece. Yes, so, ties into that. Yeah, so picture. basically, you know, Saturn entered Pisces on March 7th, 2023. It's going to be there until May 24th, 2025. But then the end of September 2025, it's going to retrograde and be in there in a little bit until basically February 13th, 2026. And I think we talked about this in another podcast. I don't know which one. I think it was the Astrology of 2023, maybe. Yes, that one? there was yeah. one last year. Basically, and this is really like so right on cue because the Dalai Lama is actually has Saturn in Pisces natally, mm. which means it's his third Saturn return about to come up. And so basically, just to kind of give people a little bit of overviews, you don't have to go back and listen to that podcast, is that Saturn represents reality, structure, and boundaries, as well as patience, self-discipline, and wisdom. So just so you know, if you're going through a Saturn transit, don't ever fear it. Just embody, face reality, create structure in your life, create boundaries, be patient, have self-discipline, be mature. Um, and Pisces represents a dissolution of separateness and structure, as well as the oceanic feelings, imagination, dreams, and transcendence. So basically, Saturn doesn't like being in Pisces, um, but but there's also some kind of um, mythical or rather archetypal overlap with it, where Pisces represents endings and new beginnings, and Saturn stands for karma. So it's a really kind of karmic period for us to be in. And in this transit, we need to expect endings and the dissolution of old structures, which is basically the consequence of everything that's happened in the past few years. So basically with Saturn and Pisces, our beliefs and dreams are going to be tested and unrealistic ones will be basically shown to be empty and meaningless. So this is basically getting rid of ideologies within us. And so the next three years are basically a period of testing of all things Pisces. So that is a period of testing of like, who do we place our faith in? Who are the spiritual ideals that we believe in, basically? You know, we really need to sober up kind of our spiritual um, ideologies and things we just buy into and face reality. And I think this is such a facing reality moment because we all have like these like projections towards like what a person, like a robe or an enlightened person should act like, should look like, right? Yeah. And now this has reality is right in our faces, right? And some people are going more into illusion and some people are very, feeling very disillusioned basically. And that's the point of Saturn and Pisces. It's meant to create a disillusion so that we can pop illusory bubbles and bring us back to reality. So, you know, we really want to look at like, what are our fantasies about spiritual teachers? What are our fantasies about spiritual awakening? What are our fantasies about our spiritual practice? Like, can we actually reality test all of the ideas that we have? And with Dalai Lama, his third Saturn return is meant to be a transition into eldership and basically, all Saturn returns tend to relate to actual physical or material changes in our lives or events. It's really about maturity and taking responsibility. It makes us face a certain area of life. Um, so the more you're used to Saturn, the better aspected Saturn is in your chart, the more, the better these transits will go. But if you're not, you know, Saturn transits are about karma. It makes us face our it makes us face our fears in a certain uh, area of life. It makes us face reality. 
Um, so basically, you know, there's this concept that really helped me understand Saturn transits, which is a concept um, by Wendell Perry in his Saturn book, where he talks about the concept of saints and sinners. So basically what he's going to be talking about is Saturn transits will go we can go either way. They can be really dark or they can be periods of great accomplishment and maturity and um, development in your own life, basically, because Saturn basically makes us translate our wisdom into action. So they're really important uh, life lessons. They create profound, uh, they create firm foundations for our future, future, their lessons in maturity. And so what he says is that, you know, they have one group of Saturn people who he calls the saint. And these are people who make good use of their Saturn uh, cycles. So some of them are spiritual people. Some of them are religious people. They usually devote a life to service and the advancement of human knowledge that they want to put the willingness of, and the welfare of humanity ahead of their own personal needs. And the second group he calls the sinners, and these people are are failing to make the best use of their Saturn transit. They often pay, place short-term comfort and pleasure before long-term goals. They often aggrandize their egos at the expense of their altruistic concerns, and this and and this often leaves them crippled and destroyed. Um, and then the public, in the public mind, they become examples of like a life poorly lived. He says. So he says. Comparing these saints and sinners will help you understand how crucial Saturn transits are because they suggest a natural growth into adulthood. They're about the person that you're meant to become. And so you can either become a more responsible, moral person, but you can also degenerate uh, or become like a sinner under the um, Saturn transit as well. So you want to see how they can go either way. And this is very interesting leading up to his third Saturn return, how all of this has come out. And I'll share more about it in a moment. I just I'll let you speak a little bit if if you would like to check in. Yeah. So I want I wanted to talk about more also Saturn and Pisces. So he has a Saturn returns. Saturn is also the Lord of Karma, as it's called, right? Yes, it's coming yes. back around. Yes. But I want to hint what you mentioned disillusion in Pisces, because it's also rules, faith, belief. Yes. Okay. So, so let me, yeah. So let me talk about that actually. So basically Saturn and Pisces is about having a balanced relationship with to spirituality. So you need to have that kind of childlike innocent and discernment. You need to be focused on both the spiritual and the material. It's about facing reality. So at its highest Saturn and Pisces is like Christ consciousness is like the, the heart of the Buddha when it's stressed, Pisces is escapist and ungrounded. So you know, Saturn in Pisces can be, a, and this is what he has natally, by the way, can attempt to save others, can develop a guru complex. Often Saturn in Pisces has lessons around um, participation in religious systems based on strict rituals and ideas like sin and punishment. It can also have lessons around meeting gurus who hypnotize you by false wisdom, or it can have lessons around being involved in a cult where you're not allowed to question anything. So what I actually see is that we're all undergoing this, and basically the Dalai Lama is like an archetypal figure of the disillusionment that we're going through in yeah. Saturn and Pisces, you know, because this is the era that we're in. It's like meeting gurus who hypnotize us by false wisdom. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of that out there right yeah, like and even dogmatic origins uh, lineages yes you know, yeah identification the robe the costume rituals all of that is yeah. being you know 
put under the big uh, magnifying glass, so to speak. So basically, Saturn in Pisces needs to experience a connection with the divine, but without this manipulation, judgment, focus on sin, punishment. And so people with Saturn in Pisces natally tend to need to have to experience disillusionment experiences around religion. And Saturn demands that all the false beliefs need to fa fall. The person will need to face the raw truth. We need to go through this collectively as well, especially if that Saturn is Saturn in Pisces is an important part in Arkshar. There basically needs to just be discernment around spirituality. There needs to be groundedness and our faith needs to meet reality. So we're all going through this transit together, but this all of these themes have been a very special significance for the Dalai Lama in particular because he is in his third Saturn return. And the last thing I just want to touch on, I'll let you, you wanted to say something about uh, about the history or? Yeah, finish up and then I can okay. talk. Okay, okay. The last thing I want to touch on, because I posted a few notes on my stories when I looked at his chart, is I'll just touch on, I mean, there's a few things that happened. Number one, when this video went viral, Uranus and Mercury were basically traveling through his 11th house, which represents the internet. So a viral video represented by Mercury with Uranus traveled across the internet and it opposed his Jupiter retrograde Scorpio in the fifth house. So he has natally Jupiter retrograde Scorpio in the fifth house, which basically Jupiter expands things. So in this case, Jupiter expands sexual desires, Scorpio fifth house, children. that are usually stale. Yeah, with children. Oh my God, that's true. That are usually stayed hidden retrograde. So this is actually shining something that's uh, in his chart. And then one more thing I wanted to point out is that he has natally Venus, Moon, Neptune with Black Moon Lilith all conjunct in Virgo. Mm. And Lilith, so basically Venus, Moon, Neptune, you know, he probably does have a gift of love and compassion. That's Venus and Neptune, right? I'm, I'll give him that. But Lilith there suggests that under the guise of purity, there's also a primal sexual animal part of him that's being hidden. So basically Lilith governs our animal instincts and primal sexuality and Lilith and Virgo wants to be perfect. And they have this strong desire to live up to other people's expectations. And this often comes from being shamed as children because if they did anything wrong that was not aligned with the expectations of the, what was often a very strict religious environment, they get shamed. So then Black Moon Lilith there tends to get obsessed. What is good? What is wrong? They tend to uh, judge themselves very harshly too. So Lilith here suggests that he did come from, I mean, you know it from his story, that he did come from a family that basically, uh, you know, rejected sexuality, you know, spirituality Suppression. had the central role. Yeah, there's no balance when Lilith is involved. It's very extreme. So Lilith in, in Virgo tends to indicate problems with sexuality. Often people with displacement repress it because they're taught it's shameful or have the traumatic experiences around sexuality. So Lilith is meant to be passionate and instinctive, but here there's an extreme suppression going on that's actually also conjunct Neptune. So there could be an element yeah. of deception, hiding it, etc. So that's just my own personal thoughts, just glancing at this chart. Excellent. So also for people who know astrology, the way uh, reasonably lit up uh, uh, because of his placements in the fifth house, the fifth house rules children. So that, and sex and romance and, sex and, and all creativity. Of that. And yeah. Blackmon Lilith is also, um, you know, hidden desires and all of that. But um, that points, you know, especially with Saturn Return. So thank you for sharing that, honey. And Saturn and Pisces, again, it's like bringing, you know, 
a lot of corruption, distortions, and uh, lies in tra uh, spiritual traditions will be exposed on one end. In the yeah. other end, it will also be talked about in a recent podcast, more people will cling to tradition, to lineage, to dogmatic religion, which we see with the, we've talked about the rise of a very fundamentalist Christian dogma happening in the US as well. Yes, right? yes. Clinging to it and and exposure at the same time on the opposite side of the coin. Yeah. But what I want to bring up now, it's very interesting in light of Saturn and Pisces, it brought up with this incident Dalai Lama, uh, the whole question about Tibet, right? Mm -hmm. And the Tibetan Buddhism. And by the way, you made a good point. We want, we will talk about this later as well. We don't want to fall into the trap of what's called psychological splitting, that the Dalai Lama is of all of a sudden all evil. It's all bad. Yeah. You might have some good sides, like you said, you know what I mean? Yeah in a certain way, but there's another side to him that just came up and to the front. It's never just black or white, just to point this out. But, you know, I've talked about or researched Dalai Lama over 15 years ago, you know, his connection to the CIA being a CIA asset, because he's such a, a spiritual rock star on a mainstream level, he hangs out of all the, sorry, all psychopathic the people. and the psychopathic globalists, Bono, the Bushes, the Clintons, all of that, and just smiley face, Right. But people have also this highly romanticized Hollywood version of Tibet, as all the Tibetan monks uh, and uh, Buddhist monks were just these peaceful, loving kindness people, just minding their own business, and then got invaded by the uh, by China, and then uh, the Dalai Lama get exiled, and poor people, and this and that, you know. Uh, but the real history of Tibet sounds quite more gruesome, and <laughs> then people are aware of. Um, specifically sexual abuse in monasteries, pedophilia, slavery, and oppressive feudalism uh, has been the norm in, in traditional Tibetan culture, right? And it has been conveniently ignored or edited out in the mainstream Western view of Tibet. For example, as Betsy Reed wrote in What We Don't Hear About Tibet, Tibet seems like a celestial paradise held in chains, but the West's tendency to romanticize the country's Buddhist culture has distorted our view. Popular belief is that under the Dalai Lama, Tibetans lived contentedly in a spiritual non-violent culture, uncorrupted by lust or greed. But in reality, society was far more brutal than that vision. And then an interesting uh, book or essay uh, called Friendly Feudalism, The Tibet Myth by Michael Parenti, he writes, Young Tibetan boys were regularly taken from the peasant families and brought into the monasteries to be trained as monks. Once there, they were bonded for life. Tashi Tsering, a monk, reports that he was, uh, it was common for peasant children to be sexually mistreated in the monasteries. He himself was a victim of repeated rape beginning at age nine. The, monastet, monas, monas, the monastic estates also conspired children for lifelong servitude as domestic dance performers and soldiers. Kim Lewis, who studied healing methods with a Buddhist monk in Berkeley, California, had occasion to talk at length with more than a dozen Tibetan women who lived in the monk's building. When she asked how they felt about returning to their homeland, the sentiment was unanimously negative. At first, Lewis assumed that their reluctance had to do with Chinese occupation, but they quickly informed her otherwise. They said they were extremely grateful not to have to marry four or five men, be pregnant almost all the time, or deal with sexually transmitted diseases contracted from straying husband. Uh, the young women were delighted to be getting on ed an education when it had absolutely nothing to do with religion and wondered why Americans were so naive about Tibet. 
and on and on it goes. Uh, <clears throat> in 1959, Anna Louise Strong visited an exhibition of torture equipment that had been used by the Tibetan overlords. There were handcuffs of all sizes, including small ones for children, and instruments for cutting off noses and ears, gouging out eyes, breaking off hands, and so forth. There were not... There were hot brands, whips, and special implements for disemboweling. The exhibition presented photographs and testimonies of victims who had been blinded or crippled or suffered amputations for thievery. So it was a very, it was a very dark feudal system, you know, with the Dalai Lama being the overlords, abusing children, having slaves, engaging in sexual abuse, pedophilia already, right? Mm. And that was, you know, around the turn of the 1950s. Uh, before the communists come in. And I'm not saying that the communists, I don't want to get like communists now, Chinese free the Tibet people, and then who knows? I think history is never black or white, right? But this whole Western idea that, the, uh, you know, the Tibet is just this nonviolent, peaceful cul uh, culture is just not true. And hence, this dark shadow of their past doesn't just go away. Mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? With their... Um, That was basically also tradition, by the way, yeah. to get these young boys, young monks sexually abused and make them even into sex slaves. Yeah. And this shadow doesn't go away. It's not like they consciously ever worked on that. It's yeah. also embedded within them still. Yeah, I've right? actually like met. I mean, I don't, I don't, I can't even count how many stories I've heard, or even a monk that uh, I was friends with me on Facebook. Like they all seem to have sexual issues. It's like you can't just suppress this yeah. part of you and then not and just expect it just not to go anywhere you know it causes yeah. major issues for them and like um you know i've heard stories of my friends being hit on by monks or like you know being sexually approached by people in robes like people have all of like the moment you put a robe on someone thinks like you're enlightened like the average westerner is like oh look at all this guy with all this wisdom he's literally just wearing a robe like there's people who wear spiritual garb in india who are homeless just so that they can get donations. Like it doesn't yeah. mean anything, but we get so distracted exactly. by the exotic appearance that we have all of these projections and ideas around it, you know? Yeah. On that, and one thing I also really want to point out in light of shadow work, really, we, most people who follow podcasts now, we're big into shadow work. We need to be careful of not only negative projections, but positive projections. A lot of people have onto the Dalai Lama, this idealized spiritual image, spiritual person he has, and he can only do good. He would do never any harm to anyone yeah. ever, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but indeed, everybody has a shadow and he's not excluded from it. He's also not an enlightened being. He just got appointed, oh, you're the Dalai Lama now. <laughs> Yeah. Right. Yeah. Number one. That's a good point. But I also want to be very clear. It's very important not to fall the other. It's it's important to point out the evil, the potential issues, corruption, and all of that. But uh, we need to also very be careful not to project our own negative shadow even onto the Dalai Lama. Not project hate on him or on any abusers because well, that's a trap from an occult level. Hmm. We only feed the entities or other forces from other realms that may be even riding His Holiness, the Azura, and all of that. Yeah. So we need to, again, be aware of our shadow projections. So uh, not falling into what I called before psychological splitting and see things only good or bad, black or white, mm -hmm. because it's never, it's it's always a mix. Uh, on the opposite of a coin, what we've seen as well, also is that obviously doesn't imply taking the so-called New Age cop-out or pop spirituality, just being silent or saying not saying anything negative or being politically correct based on some watered-down superficial spirituality that 
no, no, evil is very real and needs to be faced because most often, as it is written, Satan appears as an angel, right? Under this guise of all of that, uh, you know, denial, cognitive dissonance, and lack of shadow work keeps us at the mercy of the matrix of occult forces we have no awareness of. Because evil most often operates in the world under the disguise of goodness or kindness or charity, equality, inclusivity, sustainability, traditions, spirituality, harmless fun, and so on and so forth. And let me say something about that. Go that ahead. shadow work and like, you know, evil has its place in the eyes of the divine. Like mm -hmm. that's the realization I've come to in my own direct experience reflecting on my life and how some of the people who I could label the most cruel and harmful actually contributed the most to my own awakening. So evil has its place in the eyes of the divine, and that's my own view on it. Many people think that they need to fight evil externally or eradicate evil. It doesn't mean you don't say, you don't say how you feel, you don't share your opinion, but if you're externally fighting evil, the person that you're really with a battle with is the dark side of yourself. So we need to acknowledge that. Like once you do, the point of shadow work is wholeness to accept that, you know, can you reflect on the part of you that could be a pedophile? Could you reflect on the part of you that could be a murderer? Mm -hmm. Like, could you reflect basically to do shadow work on the Dalai Lama situation is you have to put yourself in his shoes and see how this happened. And if I were to put myself in his shoes, it's very clear, you suppress the sexual nature from a very young age. He was probably also abused by other teachers in his yes. own lineage. There you go. Like, of course, yeah. that's that. I mean, a lot of pedophiles were abused themselves. That's the whole point, right? So no, but that, I think that's, and I know that's this, what I just said is going to trigger people because they're going to have an allergic response because I'm going to the deepest level of shadow work that you can do. But if you want to really see this, the divine holistically, if you want to see the divine in all, you actually have to reflect on the, on, on the place of evil. Yeah. And that's, we go, went deep in that in our podcast episode, what evil what facing evil can teach you. So look that up. We go deeper into that because sh true shadow work is also facing the potential for evil within you. And that's yes. what we even point out. Yes. It's the trap. I see a lot of even truth is now project all the evil on this person, hate this guy, all the pedophiles, all externalizing evil. But true shadow work is also making the darkness conscious within you as well. Yes. And facing and your potential for exactly. evil. And to understand that we all have these parts within us, at least in potential. And the more that we can reflect on it, the more that we can bring them into consciousness, the less powerful they become because they're under our conscious control. That's the point. It's not so that it's like, oh, you know, all is one. The pedophiles are okay. Don't shadow project on him. No, 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 no. Actually, facing evil within you actually helps you face evil externally yes. in a very direct, stark reality check way, you know? So that's the way, that's the kind of way it is. Like even some of the stuff that I talk about, about sexual abuse and the trauma I've experienced, a lot of this I'm talking about because I've gone through the mud and the darkness and the disgust and the anger around it, and I've come out the other side. So, you know, this is kind of the work that we're being called to do is that the disillusionment experience, don't get stuck projecting the evil on the world. Oh, these 
bad gurus and take them all down and the patriarchy, etc. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, like disillusionment is one of the most critical lessons on the spiritual path. It's written across many Vedic ma mantras that you need your you need to actually remove the illusions. So if you have a disillusionment experience with a guru, with a teacher, with a Dalai Lama, or even just in life in general, that is the process of awakening. I would also say the more you've really faced your own shadow and sincere shadow work, you know, all these things you've suppressed, ignored, not only this lifetime, over lifetimes, that's a long process, the process of individuation, the more you can truly face evil without yes. denial, without cognitive dissonance, and also without overlaying your own projections where you then only see evil externally, but you don't see it in yourself and you think you're all good and virtuous. Yes, exactly. And so, you know, I just want to close this off with really talking about a concept that I love. And this is the one that I'm taking on is you can follow the teachings and not the teacher. Yeah. So that's the kind of goal that I have. I've personally, which I'll talk about in the second hour, been dissolution multiple times my parents grew up in a hindu religion where the where the guru was basically sexually abusing young girls i had experiences in india i had experience in the past couple of years so this is like anyone who's like gone seeking a guru has come across sexual abuse it's part of the territory and i'll explain from evolutionary astrology perspective why that is but when it comes down to it We need to realize that the guru is actually the light of your own true self and its connection to the divine. So the guru that you're seeing externally is meant to introduce you back, will lead you back to your true self connection to the divine. I would also say that what helps you develop that guru within is your own inner work, is your own spiritual work, is your own you know, connection to your body and your spiritual practice. Because at this point that I'm at, I trust my own intuition and my body more than what any spiritual teacher has to tell me. And I personally think that this is, it's, I know it's the path for me. And I think it can help a lot of people because your body and your intuition knows things that your mind cannot know. And often actually the mind tends to rationalize things away because it's full of cognitive dissonance, defense mechanisms, but the body and intuition knows the direct experience yeah. of truth. So if we use that as our guide, then we really, although we might go through uncomfortable experiences, you really can't go wrong. Yeah. I would also say it takes some good inner work, especially on a psychological somatic level yes. to really t uh, be sure you tune into your true bodily intuition exactly because exactly many people it's easier said than done just trust your intuition many people can mistake their own trauma responses emotional bias yeah. and all kinds of impressions or defense mechanisms as as intuition which is not intuition yeah so if you're normally someone who's in fight or flight or even freeze most of the time or if you don't even know what those are check it out then you're most likely carrying what they say in trauma theory is stored survival stress. So you have stored trauma that's basically running in your body constantly that needs to be released. And as long as you have that being stored in your body, your whole intuition, somatic intelligence will be off. You could actually, depending on how much trauma you're carrying, you could see safe situations as dangerous and dangerous situations as safe. So what I'm speaking about is basically recovering the somatic yes. intelligence. We're born with it. And then sometimes we lose it. Well, very often we lose it actually because we're conditioned to worship the mind over the body and the intuition. Trauma makes that worse. So we need to recover those natural instincts. And one sign that you haven't recovered those instincts if you're in fight, flight, or freeze a lot of the time. And so that just, you know, tra yeah. trauma work, like 
I, I'm a really big fan of trauma therapy. I don't, I, you know, body work, meaning yoga, meditation, um, you know, even massage or Qigong or whatever. For me, like if you've experienced a trauma, it will be faster healed in relationship. And that's just been my experience. As much as I've tried to do things on my own, yeah. you got to find someone to help you work that out. Exactly. So we still have a lot to cover in the second hour. I want to talk about, uh, about how the age of religion is over, right? Yeah. And all of that. And really what that means implies. We also want to show off the trap, you know, the, the issue just being your own teacher. There's yeah. almost again the other side around like, oh, I don't need no teacher. I'm all by myself. You can delude yourself. Delude yourself. So we really want to understand, go deep and what what the concept of a guru truly means within yourself or as a mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, we also be looking more, I want to talk about the Dalai Lama because he also, we had a podcast about, episode about that as well why spiritual teachers fell for the PSYOP and we know the Dalai Lama took the jab publicly and promotes it and how this may affect him now and future incarnation cycles, ironically, as the Dalai Lama, because we know based on the work of Thomas Meyer, the detrimental consequences of the COVID jab on the soul, spirit and life after death and even interfering with uh, future incarnations. Yeah. So deep on the occult level, we look into other, like for example, Gandhi, you know, uh, again, similar story with... Uh, with Compared to Dalai Lama, this whole romanticized Hollywood image people have of Gandhi is not close to the truth. And one thing I really want to cover in the beginning is I want to talk about the evolutionary spiritual state and why, oh, yes. why it tends to create a fall from grace. Exactly. So that one, we to dive deeper into it. Um, and what else? Oh, Krishnamurti I want to talk about. is a great example. And his famous speech of truth is a pathless land. And many more, and also why, uh, from my perspective, uh, true evil and elite pedophilia won't be exposed anytime soon. I mean, uh, that goes into deeper issues with the collective consciousness where we are at as a development in humanity and much more. So tune into the second hour. If you're not a member yet, go to my website, veilofreality.com, and you can sign up there to have access to all the second hours, over 100 episodes. See you soon. <laughs>